Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Alberto Gallo was at RBS, now at Algebras. And we want to dive into the market view right now with Alberto. Bring up the chart, Anthony, if you would. This is a chart we showed four or five years ago, about three times a day. This is the Spanish-German spread, the difference in yield between Spain and Germany. And all you need to know is Alberto Gala loaded the boat right there and did better than good in trying to game how rates would come down for Spain Italy, Greece, and the rest of them. And the major question, Alberto, is we're down here now, and what does that symbolize for the old and the new levels of Spain? Is it a new regime for Spain? Is it all clear for Spain? It's a low, and you're supposed to be cautious. Uh, Spain, fortunately, has a stable political situation. But generally, what we're going to see in Europe is the emergence of the same populist wave that we, are, that we have uh, seen in the UK and the US. I think the next weak points, the next vulnerable countries are Italy and France. So that's the areas where we're more worried about the rising yields and in spreads. Yeah. Now, Italy goes to vote a referendum on the 4th of December. <clears throat> Uh, about simplifying the constitution and simplifying the government, but this vote has been painted by the opposition as a way to kick out the current government, a little bit like Brexit was painted as a way to kick out right. the former UK government. And then you have in France the risk of Le Pen um, rising, uh, while the current uh, leading um, centre-right candidate is very okay. harsh on economic but policy. Is a general statement. And Marty Feldstein was on yesterday talking about asset bubbles. Professor Feldstein with real concern about elevated markets. Do you agree with that? Are markets frothy or is there value there in the Gallo bond space or for that matter the non-Gallo equity space? Uh, we have been cautious on bonds. We've been calling for this bubble to deflate uh, for many months. And particularly, you know, we're worried about Italian bonds. We're worried about French bonds and about UK bonds. You know, here in the UK, inflation expectations are three and a half. You're getting 1.4% on yield 10-year yields. So there is no value in bonds. You've got to be in a type of investment which is positioned for a rising inflationary environment and a rising bond yield environment. And currently, bond funds are not set for that environment because they were all long. They were all in a lot of ETFs, were all passive strategies. And as an investor in those funds, you're a sitting duck. Right, but Alberto, we need risk back on the markets, right? What uh, the ECB has done, and rightly so, is to give time for fiscal spending so you don't price risk when, when you look at bond yields anymore. This has to come back if we're going to keep in check so, some kind of populist measures which are counterproductive. 
Yeah, but you know, risk. Um, you know, buying bonds is not really a risk trade. It's uh, it's when you think growth well, is low. Well, certainly not at the moment. Yeah, if you think growth is low and and central banks are going to keep the world from falling apart, you buy bonds. If you actually think that there is some growth in fiscal spending, then you start buying either you buy high yield bonds or you buy uh, stocks or you, you position for a steeper yield curve. You you buy banks and insurance companies. You buy all those things that people were not looking at because they were linked to growth. Remember, even in equities, people were buying utilities and telecoms, which was a dividend trade. It wasn't a growth trade. So we're, we're seeing a huge rotation now. Right, but you remember probably as much as I do, there, there was a point when Berlusconi, Silvio Berlusconi was in charge, there was no growth, but actually the real opposition wasn't political, it was the bond market that kicked him out. Right? Yeah. And we had a technocratic government. We don't have that anymore. We don't have that, but you know, you know Draghi is leaving in January 2019. If we have a no vote in Italy uh, and if we have Le Pen rising in France, you know, the whatever it takes pledge is not going to work as well. So we could still see Italy's spread going above 200 against Boons and France spread going around 100 against Boons if there is a no vote at the referendum in Italy, uh, which is possible, uh, or if there is a chance of Le Pen higher than 30 percent, which is starting to become right. true. And, and, and this, is, this is the real issue, inequality leading to populism, monetary policy hasn't solved the problem. Yeah, I want to sum this up with economics here, Alberto. I think this is just absolutely critical. Let's bring up the Francine Lacroix chart. This is nominal GDP in Francine's Italy, and it's not a pretty story. There is the presidential four-year moving average of the animal spirit of Italy, and it ain't there. Do you see, and, and with, with uh, David Serra, do you see, Alberto Gallo, any indication of economic growth or does Mr. Trump and Chancellor Merkel and others have to work within a no-growth analysis? I think it's very different. I think in the U.S. we're going to see uh, stronger growth because some of the fiscal policies will have an impact. <clears throat> in particular, if you do infrastructure spending, you spend a dollar, you increase GDP by around a dollar or maybe even more. If you cut taxes to the 1%, then you don't have that same effect. But infrastructure spending is good. In the UK, you're probably going to see the same, although inflation is going to outpace GDP because the pound is weak and, and there's a lot of right. uncertainty. So, but in Europe, uh, Schobel, the German finance minister yesterday said we're going to double the Juncker plan. The Juncker plan is only 0.1% of GDP. So you actually need to, to make it 10 right. times bigger to have an impact. I, so I, in I, Europe, there is a problem. Yeah, that factor analysis is important. Let's finally look at the euro here and I look at the markets, folks, with Alberto Gala. Alberto, do you just zoom a dash through uh, parity once, twice, three, four times? We've made the dash to parity. Is a weaker euro the solution for all these different issues I think it helps but we it's not the solution it helps and we are gonna see another dash to parity I agree uh, with you as you suggested but I think um, the Europe uh, the weak euro helps Germany helps some countries some businesses that export but you really need inclusive growth policies so you need some spending in infrastructure you need some spending in the periphery countries that have done austerity like Greece or you know or Spain or Italy because now the dividing growth between Germany uh, which benefits the most by the weak euro versus the other countries you know is too large and if the other countries all vote for populist governments then there's no more Europe Euro parity with the dollar, will it ever happen? Yeah, I think Euro parity is in the cards, especially if you see a no vote at the Italian referendum or if you see Le Pen rising in France. All these trends uh, are going to weaken the euro, definitely, and, and increase spreads in peripheral bonds. 
All right, there you go, Alberto Gallo saying your parody, Tom, possibly in the cards, depending, of course, on the outcome of this referendum, and it's the December 4th. It's a great pleasure to have with us Kamal Sri Kumar, president of Sri Kumar Global Strategies here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Sri, great to see you here, to here in New here, York. David. Let's start with the dollar. Again, slightly weaker today, but this has been a, a strong dollar story, at least uh, since the, the election. How long do you, do you expect that to persist and, and what's driving it? Uh, I have been a dollar bull for quite some time. I think this is the start. For instance, if you were to look in terms of where the dollar-euro exchange rate is going <clears throat> I have been saying to clients that we should expect the euro to go to parity. We are now t talking about 106, 107, so we have a little bit further to go. What propels it, David, is the fact that, one, you have a Fed hike, which was, will they hike in December, won't they hike in December? And as you just said a couple of minutes ago, you now have 100% probability, Incredible. according yeah. to the market. Yeah. And I think the Trump election and the fact that he has said that he will not renominate Janet Yellen to the chairmanship when her term expires in January 2018 means that the Fed essentially has no she's not going to get if she's not going to be renominated she might as well do what is necessary and hike and i'm looking for at least two hikes next year which is again a switch from what i thought before the elections so the elections have changed it quite a bit you're going to have quite a few more rate hikes and that boosts the dollar in addition, if there is anything like a trade restriction taking place on the part of Trump, I hope not. I hope it's more on the fiscal stimulus mm -hmm. side rather than trade restrictions. But if restrictions come into force, that is going to strengthen the dollar as well. It increases global uncertainty. It increases global risk. And global investors bring money into the United States when that happens. All of that is going to be good for the dollar. And a side point mm -hmm. to what you asked, David... As that happens, I have started to say that this 234, 235, 10-year yield we saw in the last couple yeah. of days, and today it's just below 230, it's just not sustainable because you have such a, we have more than a 2% spread with the German 10-year Bund. It's the highest we have had since 1989. And this is just unsustainable. And what I think it means is that the bond vigilantes have gone a bit too far. Uh -huh in terms of selling the treasury. So it's a treasury yields come down and the dollar continues to strengthen. What you're, you're implying there, I guess, is that you have a Fed that's politically aware, not necessarily political as an, as an institution. They would fiercely say that, that they're not. Uh, but there was some awareness here that, that they could, doing something at the last meeting could have done something uh, with regard to, to the election. How politically cognizant is this Federal Reserve, do you think? Well, we have one, again, incontrovertible fact, and that is according to the Federal Election Commission, uh, Lyle Brainerd, who is a, a permanent voter uh, and a member of the Fed Board of Governors, she was a contributor to the Hillary Clinton campaign. Rumored the, to be in the running for, for Treasury Secretary. Treasury Secretary in a Clinton yeah. administration. And the, the response is, this is properly legal, but the question to you and me is, does it, how does it look, whether it is legal or not? So I think it puts the whole question of political independence into, into issue. And we have had a long history in this country, David, of presidents from time to time bullying the Fed. One of the, uh, the star instances I think of 
is my the former chairman of my economics department at Columbia, Arthur Burns, uh-huh. who became the chairman in the early 70s, essentially was bullied into increasing the money supply in 1971-72 to finance Richard Nixon's Vietnam War. Mm. And so it has been done. So the, the Fed does not have a history of continued independence. Paul Volcker, if anything, was probably an exception to the rule. What was Arthur Burns like? To review for our younger, <laughs> younger ones here today, there was Chair Yellen, Chairman Bernanke, Chairman Greenspan. Huge uproar when we went from Greenspan to Bernanke. And before that, there were selected others. But Arthur Burns defined a kind of economics. Could he do economics today? in the need for transparency today? I mean, would we accept him pipe-smoking in the House of the Senate, Humphrey Hawkins, just as one idea? I think the world has changed. I think your your question is spot on, Tom, because I don't see the Arthur Burns kind of uh, pipe-smoking uh, armchair economist, contemplative, contemplative <laughs> yes. thinking hard, like, doing like that David. today. Yeah. Yeah, right. I, mean, I mean, David, this is a serious <laughs> deal, because if you go back and look, Arthur Burns wasn't measured. He wasn't measured. I mean, they made serious jumps in yields when they chose to. And of course, not to forget one more, David, since you asked the question about political independence, we had a very little remembered Fed chairman called G. William Miller, Uh who lasted in his job for exactly one year in 1979-80. challenging. To say, yeah. To say the least. When, when, when you look at, at if the... If we bought the show to a complete halt, no, <laughs> uh, Arthur Burns, once, once again with Sri Kumar. Deep tracks people here. People driving yeah. off the road. <laughs> I fell asleep. No, 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 no. Sri, when you, when you look at the, the future of this Fed over the next 12 months, 18 months, Donald Trump, the president-elect, does have a, a huge opportunity here to reshape it, whether we're not, not even necessarily by bullying. He's going to have a lot of personnel changes that, that, that he can make. What does a, a Donald Trump Fed look like? And we've been talking about past chairman. What, what is the, the ideal Donald Trump chairman of the Fed? That's a great question, David. I would characterize the Fed policy that we have had in the last few years as essentially seat-of-the-pants policymaking. Uh, you look at the latest data point that you get and then decide whether to hike or not to hike. If there is the slightest bit of a problem elsewhere, you decide to postpone and that was the ex- uh, that's what happened, for instance, in September of 2015, mm. when there was the in the Jackson Hole a month prior, the Fed had essentially uh, Janet Yellen seemed to indicate a September rate hike, which never happened. The groundwork was there, yeah. And so th- that is what we had. So the markets have been pushed up, held back mm. by what the Fed is going to do. So the change I would like to see, and I think many of the conservative people advising the president-elect come from that camp, is more rules-based. For instance, another one of my professors in my PhD dissertation was John Taylor, famous for his Taylor rule, who's now at Stanford uh, University. And in terms of what it is, by my my calculation, Mm -hmm. the the Taylor rule would call for a federal funds rate of about plus one and a half percent today. We talked to Kim Schoenholz about that a, a, a bit ago. Let's talk to you about it now. Rules versus discretion. Chairman Greenspan says more discretion. John Taylor of Stanford says more rules. Which works, Sri? Absolutely, I'm in favor of rules because I think discretion gives rise to all kinds of subjectivity which you do not want. Mm-hmm. The market gets certainty as a result of rules. In other words, the problem there, Tom, is not rules versus discretion as much as the fact that a rules-based policy 
makes it unnecessary to have these 12 members voting on the Federal Reserve decisions, you and I can guess exactly what the Fed should be doing, well, and the market has certainty. Sri Kumar with us from Sri Kumar Global Strategies, and one of the great joys of having Dr. Uh, Kumar in with us is, is the idea of 18 things to talk about. <laughs> Let me go to the emotion of our listeners, which is where's the next pay raise? Whether it's them, their kids, whatever. So if I get a Trumpian inflation, do you just assume I get Trumpian growth with that? Or is the worst outcome here, I get a higher inflation without the growth that drives wage growth? Which is it? I think uh, you are going to have some uh, inflation pickup, Tom, uh, if you have a significant increase in fiscal spending and before that has an impact on productivity, the spending alone is likely to push up prices. Now, whether you get a salary increase or not uh, compared with that inflation is going to depend very much in terms of what kind of work that person is doing. For instance, the low-wage or manufacturing jobs where the competitors happen to be in Mexico or China or other countries, those jobs are gone forever. I don't think trade restrictions or threats by the new pre okay, president Okay, so then what can President-elect Trump do for those people you just described who were his core constituency? We have a lesson there from what happened in Germany in 2003, Tom. What they had was known as the Hartz reforms, which caused the then-Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder to be thrown out of office in 2005. Angela Merkel came in. But it essentially said workers need to be retrained. They need to be educated in jobs which have a greater demand. And as you go for an education, as you accept the training, you will get some form of salary to keep you going. Mm -hmm. And in the future, you'll be self-sustaining as a result of better skills. But if you're going to stay with your skill level and you want to be supported and you want to get a job, mm -hmm. you cannot prevent the Chinese, Indians and Mexicans from competing with you. Do you think that it's a, a certitude here that we are going to get a big fiscal stimulus package, that we're going to get the kind of infrastructure spending that Donald Trump was talking about on, on the campaign trail? Uh, and, and, and if that's the case, what are the lessons learned from back in 2008, 2009? How do you make this package more effective than the one back then? Uh, I'll answer you in two or three parts because you have a number of questions there. I think, yes, there is going to be fiscal stimulus. The easy part of the fiscal stimulus is to give tax cuts rather than decide how to build a bridge and where you're going to spend the money. That's going to take quite a bit longer to get done. So the tax cuts themselves are immediately going to give some form of a flip in terms increase on the growth rate in the short term, give a temporary stimulus. Now, how much of benefit that has depends on where the tax cut is structured. Mm. If, it is, if it is structured to give it only at the highest income levels, it's not going to percolate down to the core Trump supporters who brought him to office, and that's not going to work. And in terms of what needs to be done subsequently is you need to have these uh, fiscal uh, stimulus programs on infrastructure to be well set. You need the participation of the private sector. For instance, you can have a toll road where the private sector investor has a benefit in the tolls being used. Yeah. Then you have less expenditure on the part of the public. All of those are yeah. important, and they are going to take time. That's yeah. why I don't think you're going to be, have a big burst in growth immediately. Mm. Sri, I'm depressed. <laughs> I, I came out of the building yesterday. Folks, we're next to Bloomingdale's here on Lexington Avenue, and I got up all the The windows are open. You can see lights, the holiday windows. Festive yeah. lights in the holiday windows. And I said... Should I walk home? 
and it's four blocks. I mean, three, four <laughs> city blocks. There's a photo out on Twitter, folks, of young David Gura. David, you live just this side of the Hamptons. How long is it for you to walk home? <laughs> Hour forty-five. That's about six. That's about six miles. But uh, you know, six lovely. miles. Yeah, yeah. To that's Brooklyn. extraordinary. Well, <laughs> I've never done that. It's like a marathon. There you go. Let me get a headline in here, Tom. Uh, a headline here crossing the terminal from MSNBC, which says President-elect Donald Trump will not pursue an investigation into Hillary Clinton again. This is a report. From MSNBC that's not been confirmed by Bloomberg saying Donald Trump will not pursue uh, an investigation uh, into Hillary Clinton. You remember during the campaign he often pledged to do that. If he were to be elected, he'd launch an investigation over her usage of personal email. Uh, So he appears to be reversing course on that. Again, an unconfirmed report here from MSNBC, and we'll bring you more details on that uh, as we get them. Also, the New York Times responding. Michael Barr mentioning the fact that uh, Donald Trump canceled his meeting uh, with the New York Times today. Uh, The New York Times saying it first became aware of that when it uh, when the editorial board there saw the tweet from Donald Trump while this morning. While we're looking at the news flow, uh, NBC saying that Mr. Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani, considered for Trump national intelligence director, sort of the stream of consciousness. It's it's a whole new world, David. Yeah, more meetings today at Trump I mean, Tower does, before he heads to, to Florida, I think, for the does holiday. Does the president in two or three or four terms, do they use Snapchat? <laughs> right. <laughs> Where, what platform is next? What's the next president going next, to be on for sure? Snapchatting the American public. I don't know. It's a brave new world. Very We're true. thrilled you're with us worldwide. Bloomberg Surveillance, this is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Reiterating what I said at the top of the show, the WIRP function on the Bloomberg, looking at Fed funds futures, showing a 100% probability of a rate We're hike here. I want 100 100% probability. Come on. Come I just on. am like astonished We're by this. We're at the 100% bound. We yeah. need to get to 110%. I have not seen that before, but uh, indeed, it's been that way uh, since yesterday afternoon. I want to bring Kim Schoenholtz. He is professor of management practice in the economics department at NYU's Stern School of Business, former global chief economist uh, at Citigroup. It's great to have you with us. And we were talking to, to Sri Kumar a few minutes ago. Uh, about the, the the pluses and minuses of a rules-based system for, for the Federal Reserve. This is something that Congress is actively chewing over. It seems like there is a, a possibility we could see this happen here uh, in, in the new term. Walk us through, as you see it, the, the, the pluses and minuses of a system like that, the, the fors and the againsts. Well, let's start with where we are. Yes. Uh, we currently have a system in which Congress monitors the Fed and judges their performance against a mandate. The mandate is price stability and keeping unemployment close to some low sustainable level. And on that basis, uh, the Fed has done a reasonably good job, and especially considering the enormous scale of the recent crisis. Inflation has been relatively low and stable. In fact, if anything, a little bit too low. Um, So uh, I think that that has turned out to be a successful system. What's being proposed is that Congress switch to monitoring the operational tools that the Fed uses, Mm. namely conventional interest rates. And 
They want to set there. The proposal has been to set up a policy rule, the Taylor rule, yeah. as a benchmark against which the Fed could create its own rule, but would still be measured not only against its own rule, but against the Taylor rule. And while that has some benefits, it does tend to constrain Fed discretion more than what we observe today. It could also have some real downsides. And in particular, any simple rule that we can think of is often going to need to be violated in practice. And uh, basically, because it just can't take account of the complexity of the world we're in. And it sounds like the proposed legislation would would allow for some some flexibility there. I think there will be those who wonder about the counterfactual here. If you look back over the last 10, 15 years, how things would be different or might be different if a rule like this were in place. Well, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it, one of the questions is, uh, would the Fe- Federal Reserve be more... Um, obliged to try and stick to a rule or stay close to a rule, even if they thought that wasn't the optimal policy. Mm. So, for example, there are often very sharp changes in financial conditions. Equity market crashes, um, big um, crises that we've observed, and they don't show up instantaneously in a rule, typically not a simple one like Mm. the Taylor rule. So had the Fed waited to respond to those kinds of shocks until it shows up in GDP and inflation, that could have been a real big problem. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, to be fair, um, having a rule probably reduces mm. the chances of really large errors. So um, the question is, how do you judge the last 30 years from the Fed? I think right. a lot of people would say, aside from the financial yes, crisis, yes. they got the basics of keeping right. inflation low and stable right. Let's go Ned Phelps on everyone. <laughs> Nehru. N-A-I-R-U is one of the plugins of the Taylor Rule. I would suggest if you get six economists in a room, you're going to get 14 opinions on Nehru. How can we have a Taylor Rule where we don't know what one of the major plugins is? Tom, I, I couldn't agree more. Actually, I think you, you'll find out that there'd be even more disagreement about measuring potential GDP, which is another way, another element of a different formulation of the Taylor Rule. And the one about which there is the most disagreement is the natural rate of interest, that first number that appears in the Taylor rule. Um, Taylor used the number two. It seemed reasonable at the time because it was the average for the short-term real interest rate he'd observed. Today, there are estimates that that number should be as low as zero. Um, and that that source of uncertainty about what the right level of rates is is just enormous. So I don't think any simple rule can account for that. Kim Schoenholtz with us as we – are you going to tweet out today so everybody can know what you're doing? Um, you know, I, is this I a new NYU distribution system? This is great. Um, I actually don't tweet under my own name, I, but Steve Cicchetti and I write a blog called Oh, there Money goes that Cicchetti guy. Again. Exactly. <laughs> Moneyandbanking.com. And we every time we do post, um, which is usually on Monday mornings, we tweet out the message that we've done a post. Yeah, it's under real Steven Cicchetti. <laughs> an esteemed economist. I mean, Except no imitation. Some work at BIS uh, in Switzerland. Kermit Schoenholz with it's Professor Schoenholz, Dr. Schoenholz of New York University. What was the shift like to go from market, big bank economics to academics? When you go in a classroom for the first time to teach, I mean, did, did you take the pharmaceutical? Did you, were you sedated? <laughs> what do you do? You know, I, I tell it the other way, Tom. You know, in the 20 years I was a market economist, I was doing economics 101 for clients all the time, yeah. uh, trying to teach them applied macroeconomics mm. and evaluating asset prices. So right. I just brought that to the classroom uh, and felt pretty much right at home. What do MBA students want? And folks, full disclosure here, NYU Stern was 
literally my first supporter when we did Bloomberg on the economy. They're the first people, along with Sector Spiders, who stood up and said, yeah, we're going to sponsor this program. What do the MBA students want from academics like you? Look, I think they they want uh, several things. First, they want a broad understanding of the world so they can do their jobs, not just now, but in the long run. They want to have careers, not just first jobs. But second, they want a set of skills that are going to prepare them for the for the workplace today. And those skills are changing. Um, big example of that is financial technology, um, which is changing the way you know, people operate in finance. How do you teach the ambiguity that you and I know from microeconomics? The, the, what I find so challenging is for people, it's not on the one hand, on the other hand, it's the mathematically ambiguous dynamics within every economic discussion. How do you teach ambiguity? You know, my, I think in practical sense, Tom, the best way to do it is actually put people in the position of thinking about a decision they have to make. Yeah. It's, it's a bit, a bit like game playing mm-hmm. uh, or a war game in some sense. And you have to challenge them to think about how do you make this decision? What are the factors that are going to influence your decision? What do you need to know? And then when you, dr- when you drill down, you find out what are the things you can, you can know and what are the things you can't. I think that's actually the most practical way It was way sort to of David-like. Harvard football last weekend. <laughs> they had to figure out the ambiguous outcome. Uh, yes, it was an unambiguous outcome. Do you get students who are interested in going into to government at this point? Is that an attractive career path, talking about going into to, to government economics? For yeah, instance? you have to take Tweet 101. Exactly. Oh! Yeah, 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 yeah. Excuse me. It, it's a minority. It's a minority. And, and I, but, you know, for... You know, I think in many ways, the, the thing to keep in mind is if you ask how do you change the world today, mm. you may be able to do that better through creating a new business and changing the technologies that are available to us than entering government. Mm. And so um, entrepreneurial activity, big plus. We we encourage people to do that. I was reading your most recent notes, and, and you write a lot about the, the problems with how we measure inflation. You bring up the, the new frontier there of financial technology. How about the new new terrain of, of forecasting? Are we getting any better at getting a sense of how the economy is doing? Um, we're, we're okay, but yeah. we're not good. And, uh, and it's partly because, you know, there are certain things about the economy that are inherently unforecastable. Uh, people form expectations about the future, sometimes in ways we do not understand. And those expectations have a huge influence on the way they behave, on whether they invest, whether they save, whether they spend more, um, whether they're willing to pay a higher price. Um, so there are a lot of things about which we need to learn more. The good news is there's a lot more microeconomic work that's being done to inform what we think about the macroeconomy. Mm-hmm. And I have good – I have hopes that 10 or 20 years from now, that will actually improve our way of thinking about the world. Taking this back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, a, a more rules-based system. Tom was asking about ambiguity of mathematics and the, the microeconomic space. How, how big a hurdle is that to overcome there, the ambiguity that central bankers face on a daily basis? Look, they have to make decisions. They're they're in the game. Yeah. They can't. Uh, it's a little bit like you know, when when you they face uncertainty, they're a bit like an airline pilot. They're already up in the air, and if there's a challenge, they have to figure out how to land the plane, not to stop and say, "Let's think about this as an academic exercise." So, from their point of view, getting the plane right. down safely mm-hmm. is the big challenge. That's a, a brilliant model. Yeah. The brilliant model. The dynamics that institutions and policymakers have to work in. I go. I mentioned Rick Mishkin uh, uh, before on this, but the, the basic idea of the dynamics, do you observe that the people around the presidential president-elect 
can move him from Trumpian certitude, which we all know, and I think of Mr. Trump. Thank you. It's a redundant, morning, redundant Trump. comment there. I know, I think, but, so. but, but if you have Trumpian certitude, can he amend that to a dynamic analysis? You know, I, I can't say with any degree of certainty, you know probably better than I do, but I do I did think that President Obama uh, added some insight into this uh, the other day when he said, when you get into the Oval Office, it changes the way you see the world. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, we'll see how that works out after January. Yeah, uh, David, I'll be honest here. I'm sort of optimistic about it because every president is overcome by events. I yes. mean, every single one. Yeah. Uh, yes, invariably. Uh, I was struck, though, reading that piece in the New York Times over the weekend by Maggie Haberman about uh, Donald Trump after that meeting in the Oval Office, how he was sort of back to his old old routine, and indeed we've seen the, the tweets this morning. So yes, maybe we're waiting for that that event or or, or those events. Well, he's not there yet. He's Cubs not there yet. <laughs> I was going to go over to the Gucci store yesterday, and I gave up. Couldn't David. get through. Couldn't you couldn't get fight there. through the crowds. Yeah. I just was going over to look. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those weekly window shopping. No, YUN, our producer folks, YUN, he wants the he wants the little loafers with a fur around the edges. Yeah. And on the snake on the top. Top of his Christmas list. Yes. <laughs> Let me ask you, you know, we're talking about sort of introspection, uh, president-elect coming to terms with the gravity of his office. Uh, we've seen that in the central banking space uh, as well. You've written about this this too, the Bank of Japan uh, becoming introspective, reevaluating its policies. Uh, is this going to become more widespread, do you think? We've seen central banks learning along the way here, but um, the BOJ did take a real pause to take stock. They, they've had to. I mean, this is necessity is the mother of invention here. Yeah. Uh, they've tried a lot of different things, and they're not working that well. Um, their goal is to try and get an inflation target of 2%, and they're f- far below it, and the odds of them hitting it are not that good in the next couple of years. So um, I admire their willingness to, to review their... Uh, performance, to think about new ways of approaching the problem, and to try things that other central banks just haven't done. Um, having said that, they're on a pretty risky path, and uh, there's no no certainty that what they're trying now uh, will work, and it puts them at some risk. One final question, if we could. Within the last press conference, which seems light years ago, I was thunderstruck of how Chair Yellen struggled with an ex-post, ex-anti, before the fact, after the fact, analysis. It seems like it's an institution that wants to get out front with a crystal ball, but understands every bit of history says they're reactive by definition. They are an ex post after the fact institution, aren't they? You know, if they could see the future, um, they would anticipate it and behave behave accordingly. But like most of us mortals, they have limits in their ability to foresee what will happen. So the best they can really do, Tom, is tell you how they will behave when the events create shocks. And if you know that, you can anticipate their behavior in advance, Mm -hmm. and you actually make policy more effective because what you do in markets responds before they do. Kim Schoenholz, thank you so much. With Stern School, New York University, of course, assisting on economics. This day of 100% likelihood of a December rate rise. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but there it is. Kind of unbelievable. I yeah. I, you know, I thought so yesterday. But. I mean, I made a joke that we go to 110% likelihood. <laughs> Great pleasure here to bring in Jim Paulson, strategist with Wells Capital Management. Jim, good morning. Good morning. Let's let's pick up here with where we were, where we just were talking to Jane Foley uh, no, whoa, about. Whoa, whoa, how, whoa, oh, whoa, sorry, whoa, whoa, whoa. Tom Keen interjects. David, David, please. 
Yes. The only reason Paulson's on is the Vikings are playing the Lions. Uh. 12.30 p.m. Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> hey, I mean, dinner game, before man. or after, Jim? I, I went to Rachel Wurstman and I said, we got to talk to Paulson about Vikings-Lions. I mean, that's why Thanksgiving, the Pilgrims looked at the Lions play. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's the NFC North title is on the line. I, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be eating late, Tom, after the game. I think. Okay, very good. Okay, we got that out of the way. All Continue. Right. Dispensed with dispensed with these important matters. Jim, Jane Foley talking about how uh, how correlated everything is right now. You look at the equity space. You're looking also at FX. You're looking at commodities as well. You agree with that? We're at, we're at a time of high correlation. Well, um, I'm not sure. I, I totally do. I mean, I certainly get risk on is correlated. And risk off is correlated. Um, you know, you certainly got uh, um, you know a completely different relationship of late between bond yields and the stock market, for example, different than it's been in much of this recovery, with stocks and yields going you know directly higher. You certainly got the you know dividend aristocrats and bond surrogate stocks and low vol consumer stocks, you know, significantly underperforming while the cyclical areas of the market you know, are doing doing much better. So if anything, I think there's been uh, less correlation than, uh, than there has been over much of this recovery, although I agree that a lot of the risk-on parts are, uh, you know, small caps. You know, there's, there's a broader participation in this rally than we've had in earlier ones. What was the, uh, the catalyst for what we saw yesterday, the records that we saw yesterday? Well, I think the, you know, I, I think a lot of this, the catalyst to this market is, been building most of the year. You know, I, I think we came off the lows of 1800 back in February because of uh, the expectation global growth picking up a little bit. And I think a lot of the trends that we saw since the election, for example, that people have attributed to Trump, I think were in place starting at, at least in the summer. I mean, if you look at the underperformance of you know, bond surrogate and defensive stocks, that started in the summer. The uh, outperformance of more cyclical started then as well. The yield curve started steepening then a little bit and accelerated in the early fall. Uh, inflation expectations started to climb uh, then. And I, I think the big catalyst to me is, if you think about it, prior, prior to the third quarter, we had sub-2% real GDP growth in the United States. Uh, for quite a while, and we also had negative year-on-year -year earnings growth going on. Now, in the third quarter, what happened is we shot up to almost 3% GDP growth, and we're looking now, the GDP Atlanta Fed now number is 3.6% for the fourth quarter, and also in the third quarter, year-on-year -year earnings growth went positive for the first time in more than a year, and it looks to be even stronger in the fourth quarter. In addition to that, in the third quarter, you had a notable pickup in overseas growth. So China reports got decidedly better. Look at Japan posting a two-plus GD, real GDP number uh, in the latest quarter. U United Kingdom, which was feared to fall apart, has mm -hmm. actually improved. So I think we, got, we went from you know, very sluggish growth throughout the world, negative year-on-year -year earnings, to suddenly going to an accelerated growth in the United States and abroad, and the return of positive earnings. And I think that set off a, a, a move towards risk-on assets, which even got exacerbated by the election. How many chapters are left here in the story of the, the strengthening dollar? Well, I, that's where I differ a little bit with the consensus. Um, you know, I, I know that the, the dollar index is at a 14-year high or whatever, um, but I think 
the reality is it's it's pretty close to the top end of a trading range it's been in since the start of January 2015. If you go back to January 15, the dollar is about the same then as it is right now. I think it's peaking. I think the dollar is going to come down over the next couple of years, and that'll be the biggest surprise I think in the markets. If there's one a one-way consensus trade at the moment, it's the dollar is yeah. on a freight train north, and I think it's going to go the other yeah, way. This is an important outlier call, folks, and we're hearing this from a number of our uh, guests really trying to push against this massive uh, uh, consensus view. Uh, Jim, I want to come back and talk about how our listeners should adapt and adjust to, and I say this with respect for those cautious, the doom and gloom view. Frame for us the level of doomish and gloomish now. How bad is it? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, Tom. Um, in some sense, with the market breaking to new highs um, and with yields starting to move higher, I think it's sort of improved some of those outlooks. You know, we've had, and maybe maybe the Trump election too, but we've had some big voices that have turned more bullish on the outlook for things. Yeah. Um, I think to some extent there's still a, a, a bearish undertow there. There's no doubt of that. Um, but I think if anything, it's turned a little more okay. uh, positive of late. We're taking a broader, a correlated view today. We're talking to people about their special abilities, but also to our good guests about how everything blends in together. Jim Paulson with us with Wells Capital uh, Management. He has been a resilient optimist. He has been on board. His markets have moved higher. Jim, um, you know, I had sainted relatives that we, you know, some of them are up for sainthood. Uh, they had to put up with me, who read Joe Granville religiously. And there's always in every generation, there's somebody who's a little bit cautious, a little bit gloomy. Mm-hmm. I've never seen the doom and gloom now, particularly on Fridays, across the Internet, across the bandwidth that all of our listeners read. It's like every Friday, go to cash. This is primal scream. How do you deal with that? How do you rationalize staying in your 401k, staying investments when you're buffeted by all this gloom? Yeah, that's been a, a constant theme, I think, ever since 2008, in my view. This, this recovery to me will always be remembered as you know climbing a perpetual wall of worry like no other recovery I remember. And indeed, despite the fact that we're up you know, more than threefold in the stock market, despite the fact that we've created, uh, uh, you know, record-setting numbers of jobs and the unemployment rates come down below 5%, and a lot of good profitability under the bridge, and I could go on. And despite all that, this, is, this recovery has never generated confidence in the future. It really has been absent, that we have never really seen the full-out animal spirit behaviors that you'd normally associate with this long of a renewed expansion. And um, I think confidence has been our biggest challenge in this country. You know, certainly demographics have held our growth rate back. That's a problem. Productivity is an issue. But I would put confidence up there with with, with those issues as probably the most important economic issue. And I think leadership, including the Federal Reserve, needs to think more about treating confidence as opposed to just treating balance sheets and income flows. Um, and, And that's why I'm a bit excited that for the first time, with yields going up and with the Fed showing every indication it's going to raise yields, that might start to do more good for animal spirit behaviors that we're, we're heading towards normalization again and away from zero interest rates 
then the higher rates will do bad for balance sheet and income flows. I think treating confidence uh, might be one of the biggest things that could benefit uh, the broadness of this economic recovery going forward. You're proposing treating confidence directly. How's the Fed going to do that? Well, I, I think that uh, I, I think the Fed by maintaining a crisis-like policy far beyond any kind of sense of crisis. The crisis probably ended within 18 to 24 months of the recovery start. But we're continuing to uh, practice unconventional, massive monetary stimulus along with, you know, zero interest rate structures and far past the crisis point. I think without saying a word, every day it's action scream, we're very scared and you should be scared too. And I would say a lot of our leaders have done the same kind of thing. Uh, in this country, rather yeah. than rather than maybe show some confidence, if they showed some confidence, the private sector might what, too. What are they scared of? Well, there's just been an overwhelming sense that you know, ever since '08, that we're this close to the second coming of the Great Depression and the deflationary well, but, global but abyss. You, don't you suggest that they are scared of the bipart America, which is what the you know the haves and the have-nots, the the inequality of opportunity. Yeah. There certainly is some of that, and there has been a warping of the income distribution since we've hit disinflation since the 1980s, I think. Um, the best thing for that time, in my view, would be if we could improve productivity in this country, and that, that, could, that could go a long ways if we could resurrect some private capital spending, and that takes confidence. If we could, if we could get confidence among corporations, they, they take that massive excess cash hoards they have and put it into capital expansions and, and more capital for labor. And I think if we did that, productivity would rise and the share of labor's take of national income would also do better. How, how is this next administration going to do that? We, we hear floated here tax cuts, tax reform, infrastructure spending. What strides is that going to make here getting us to, to a more confident consumer, more confident economy? Well, if it actually happens, I, I think one of the things, I think the market is overestimating the, the pace and the degree of change that's going to happen under the Trump presidency. This idea, the way the market's moving, that within the first 100 days we're going to have a massive Roosevelt-like capital spending program. We're going to build a wall around the country. We're going to repeal Obamacare and replace it. I think Fix the Minnesota Twins. Yeah, we're going to do that. <laughs> That's a rider in there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the I think it's going to be far slower. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, gridlock, even among Trump and the Republicans, let alone on the Democratic side of the aisle as well. And I don't expect we're going to get a lot of fiscal change until the next recession. I think in the next recession we may get a bigger fiscal spending program, but I don't look for a lot of change until then. Where do you see opportunity here quickly? I know you've liked materials in the past. In light of what we've seen here over the last two weeks, is that is that oversold? I I think on the uh, the first thing I'd say is I, I think that I'd look international right now that has lagged here in this most recent rally, both emerging and international markets and away from the United States. I'd secondly with the sectors uh, right now I I like the materials and energy uh, sectors overall and technology um, that are I think on the industrial producer capital goods sort of the equation that's going to do well in the rest of this recovery, but those have trailed. For example, mm. uh, the, the small cap stocks that have done real well of late or the industrials that have done real well of late uh, and the financials. I like those as well, but I think those stocks are a little ahead of themselves right now. And I'd look more at the materials, energy, uh, 
at uh, areas of the marketplace. Jim Paulson, thank you so much. Jim Paulson, Thanks for having Capital uh, Management, some wisdom there uh, within the parsing of his uh, optimism. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.